Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors, a strategic communications company. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is County Mayor Weston Womp. Mayor Womp utilized his experience in the private sector and his commitment to serving the public good to be elected the youngest mayor in Hamilton County history. Mayor Womp, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about your experiences growing up that led you to serving your community, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? Uh, my morning cup here is Costa Coffee, thanks to you. My morning cup normally yeah. is really, really dark coffee. Shelby and I have a this coffee maker. It's like an old Smeg coffee maker. And we've never had blacker coffee than is served at our house every morning. And we've got a lot of kids and, you know, it gets us going. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you got a lot of kids and I want to get there, but you grew up differently than a lot of us. You grew up in the public eye to a great degree. How old were you when your dad went to Congress? I was seven when he was sworn in and uh, he ran against our incumbent congressman, Marilyn Lloyd, two years earlier. So really, five, don't even know that I'd turned five when our family first hit the campaign trail. So I quite literally grew up on the campaign trail across East Tennessee. So that was the norm for you. You know, a lot of us grew up, dads go to work, come home, and we're not that involved with, unless it's a family business. So to a great degree, it became your family business. Yeah. I mean, it was a family commitment for us. I mean, I've only got one sibling and Cody and I were both young. My dad was a commercial real estate broker who had taken quite a bit of financial risk personally just to run for Congress. So we, on the weekends, you know, we stuck together as a family unit and that meant a lot of time out campaigning. And it's the old Tennessee's third district. It still overlaps a lot with what the third district is now. And so it's a roving district that spreads all across East Tennessee. And I do think it, you know, just without realizing it as a kid, it gave me a deep familiarity with not just this county, but Bloodsoe County, Sequatchie County, Ray County, Roan County. And it's a great way to grow up. Honestly, I, I look back on those memories as being really fun ones. I try to remind Shelby, my wife, that even when our kids, uh, they don't get real excited about going out and doing stuff with me <laughs> on the weekends, but a lot of times through seeing your parents pursue stuff that they believe in and love that you begin to see what the future of your life looks like. And I had that experience with my daddy, and my grandfather. I, I really think of myself as this son of a politician, grandson of an architect, and my dad's brothers were also architects. And I may have missed my calling. I think I would have been a good architect. Uh, I love our community. I don't know that I'll ever really be a good politician. No, you've done pretty the, well so far. Those are the two things. <laughs> those are the two worlds I come from, and I do enjoy them both. On the architecture side, do you pursue any of that as a hobby? Do you draw? Is that something that when you want to relax and just kind of get away from the whole political thing that you pull out a drafting table and say, you know what? Well, even in this job, I mean, we're going to have an opportunity to build a lot of stuff, I think, as a community well, in the next few years alone. and schools. And, and my grandfather was particularly in the latter part of his career, he was a school architect. He designed about eight elementary schools that are still being used in this county. You know, in, in the latter years of his career, he designed East Ridge Elementary and Saudi Elementary. And I walked a lot of those sites with him, which is an interesting through line in my life. I would have had no idea as a teenager <laughs> that I would end up. I didn't grow up around local government. I only grew up in a family where my dad had gone from commercial real estate. Uh, he was a party organizer here and then, and then ran for Congress. But 
Uh, I do like to draw. I drew the house that I live in. Did and you then, really? Uh, I've drawn out with my one of my uncle's help, drawn out another home that at some point we want to build. Kind of the dream home thing. Yep. I didn't know that about you. I knew your architecture connection, but I didn't know that that was something that you enjoy oh, doing. Love I love it. I mean, everybody on our staff knows I've got a strong opinion about every building we're in, including this one. I mean, the Hamilton County Business Development Center is a historic building in our community. It's one that we've got a lot of thoughts about how we can reinvest in it so that it supports entrepreneurs like you mm -hmm. and, and gives a, a hand up to entrepreneurs who may not have a whole lot of supports around them. But I love buildings. Yeah, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you to tell me what you think a bad local building is, but give me an example of one that you look at and go, that's a really good architect, something that, that really identifies with Chattanooga. Well, so this community was, downtown was designed in large part by R.H. Hunt. So there's one architect, and if you go Google him, it's pretty wild that over decades he designed most of the iconic structures here. He designed the county courthouse, he designed the Tivoli, he designed... CSAS, which is, you know, the original city high school, on and on and on. He designed Memorial Auditorium, for that matter. Uh, I think he designed City Hall. It's kind of shocking when you realize how yeah. many of Chattanooga's most beautiful buildings, you know, at this point, people know about my love of and interest in education. So when I think of beautiful buildings here, the original um, Chattanooga High School, Chattanooga City High School, which is now CSAS, to me, that one is Hard to beat. It's classic, isn't it? Very classic, yeah. That's my kind of architecture. That stuff stood the test of time. Yeah. It looked good 300 years ago. It's been standing there for 100 years, and it's still the most beautiful school in town. Isn't that amazing that you could build a building like that 100 years ago, and it's still functional? Well, and part of the reason we love it is that there were buildings that looked like that all across Europe four or 500 right. years ago. And that's not to say there's not a place for modern architecture. In fact, my grandfather... A lot of the stuff that he designed around here that's still being used was mid-century style. But, um, you know, when it comes to education, if you want to design stuff that'll stand the test of time, you know, it's, it's like what R.H. Hunt did 100 years ago at the county courthouse. You talk about a building I love, man, it's a huge honor as a person who loves great buildings to, to go to work in that building. And, and I think, the, for that matter, the lawn of the courthouse where we've begun to host more events, historically, that was really the gathering place. That's a smart thing to do. I want us to convene there more often, not on a day like this where it's 100 degrees, <laughs> but what I, uh, I take a lot of calls on the courthouse lawn. Do you? Of, yeah. People drive by the courthouse. Like I'll be out there sitting on a Are you a walker talker? I got to be walk walking while you're talking. This is going to be hard for me, Mike, because I'm, <laughs> I'm a big walker talker. <laughs> well, I'm with you on that one. Let's talk a little bit about growing up in a congressional family from the standpoint of when your dad went to Congress, the family stayed here and he commuted back and forth. How much did you get to D.C., and how big of an influence was that on you and your career? Oh, it was huge. You know, that was—I um, didn't get to go a ton because we did live here, and my dad was the epitome of a commuter congressman. He would often be, like, double-booked on flights on a Friday afternoon to get out. Like, if he could get out of town at 3, he'd be out at 3 if he had to be out at 5. So he was very rarely there on the weekends, but— um, Cody and I, we loved the weeks, particularly in the summer. We'd go hang out with him up there. It's a real special childhood to feel like the halls of the U.S. Capitol are yours. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it works now, but in the 90s and early 2000s, there were a lot of privileges given to kids. Some kids aren't much of a security threat. And so, you know, we really did kind of run the halls of the Capitol. And on the floor of the house— you have uh, kids, I think back then, kids, and I think this is held true, kids can be on the floor of the house through like 13 years old. And for years and years, my dad would leave me unattended on the house floor because I knew so many members of Congress and they knew me. 
there's a cloakroom off to the back with a, you know, kind of a snack bar and stuff. And I just acted like I owned the place. <laughs> but then on a more serious level, you know, I had seen it from the campaign side up. And so I had, I think, a deep appreciation from a pretty young age of our country, its mm-hmm. history. My dad and I both love history. And, you know, that, that's a, it's a center of freedom in the whole world. And so for a lot of my best, brightest childhood memories to have been there, I think certainly shaped my thoughts about public service in our country, even at a time where most people are cynical. I can't be cynical because I feel like I saw so many right, redeeming qualities up close and personal of our country and then was really fortunate to grow up close to some of my dad's best friends in Congress who are some of the finest people I'll ever know. And that probably more than anything had impact on me being interested in government. You've mentioned a few of those uh, peers of your dad's before. Who besides your dad had the most influence on you in terms of someone who served in Congress? Yeah, my dad had the most influence on me as a person, the person politically who got me really interested. And I still, you know, if I'm emulating anybody, it's Dr. Tom Coburn from Oklahoma, one of the most extraordinary Americans of the 21st century. He was a business guy, successful business guy as a young man went to medical school at a relatively late age, delivered thousands of babies as an OBGYN, went to Congress, term-limited himself, left the House after six years, and then went back as a U.S. Senator, was known as Dr. No in the U.S. Senate. It's a great nickname, by the way. (laughs) Probably the most conservative, principled conservative of his time in the U.S. Senate, but a beloved colleague of everybody and a close friend of, of Barack Obama's. They were friends in the Senate friends when he was president, their relationships, you know, kind of much written about. Which proves it can be done. Oh, my whole childhood showed that it could be done. And so Senator Coburn, we all called him Dr. Coburn. Um, Dr. Coburn and Steve Largent, the Hall of Fame football player, were my dad's two first roommates. So imagine, I got a cool enough dad, but from 1995 (laughs) until they were leaving, I mean, the two guys who were like Uncle Steve and Uncle Tom to Cody and I were two of the coolest Americans. Hall of Famer Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. pretty cool. And then after that, so they lived together, but then my dad ended up moving in. You know, a lot of guys, if you're not rich in Washington, you'll end up sharing a place with other members. And so he lived at times with as many as eight or nine other members of the House and Senate. And they weren't all Republicans. Like a couple of our closest friends to this day, one of our closest family friends, a guy named Bart Stupak from Menominee, Michigan, an old state trooper who got elected to Congress as a Democrat, flew to Chattanooga for my wedding a decade ago. And so my dad was a Bible Belt conservative, but politics and relationships didn't have bearing on each other in the house I grew up in, which is so different would be than nice where to we get are back today. There, wouldn't it? Yeah. In talking about growing up, your dad's commuting back and forth. Uh, you went to school here, went to uh, Big Ridge, Chattanooga Christian, graduated. Talk about how growing up here and having that experience led to you wanting to serve the public. Yeah, I don't know how that worked, really. For sure, it's a strange way to grow up in a mid-sized community. You got one congressman. I used to frame this out to people because, you know, if, if you live in a big city, Atlanta, I don't know the exact number, but, you know, greater Atlanta may have six members of Congress, right? Here, there's one congressman. And from the time I was a first grader through college, it was my dad and he's a big personality. And so everybody kind of knew that's uh, what our family did. You know, whatever the downside of growing up in the public eye. Cody and I didn't know it another way, so we were just used to it yeah, and didn't, you grew up it with didn't bother it. us. You know. And your sister is county district attorney, Cody Wong. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Our dad never encouraged either of us to be interested in politics or to pursue it. I think to this day, his life would have been easier had we not had any <laughs> political ambition. Cody is really more of a, Cody's more of a cop than she is a politician. I mean, she's, she knew from high school on that she wanted to be a criminal attorney and she was uh, won the awards for advocacy at UT law school. And so her path was very specific. She was a public defender here and then a prosecutor and then worked in the sheriff's office. And her mindset is much more of a law enforcement officer than a politician. And then I, I probably came up more in the traditional thinking about public service. And, uh, and also, you know, when I was growing up, I haven't said this in years, Mike, but you asked that question in a way that made me remember one of the people who caused me to think of myself as maybe having opportunities younger in life was Harold Ford Jr. Oh, yeah. Because he and my dad were good buddies, but he, when he got to Congress, he was actually closer to my age than my dad's. And so he was kind of both of our friend, Democrat from Memphis. Mm -hmm. and his dad had served in Congress. He got elected to Congress at 25. Oh, I, I remember. I was in Memphis at the time. Yeah. He was a good Congressman. Yeah. And Junior, we call him Junior. He's still a good family friend. Yeah, you know, he's one of the guys who made me think. Of course, you know, at this point, I'm now 36. I got elected at 35. My dad got elected to Congress at 36. So I don't know if it's young. It's young, I guess, for the position I'm in, but uh, it's, it's probably a pretty good age to enter elected office. So when you decided to get into the public eye by running for office and you made your first run for Congress in, what was it, 2012? Yeah. And fell a little bit short. Talk about what you did after that, what you decided to do instead of running for Congress again. Yeah. The reason I ran and had the opportunity to run, certainly, you know, is in part due to my dad's service. But at a personal level, when I came back from UT, I got into business with Ted Alling, Barry Large, Alan Davis, and these guys who had started at that time Axis America, which grew to a half a billion dollars in revenue and sold it. At that time, when I met him and went to work for him, I worked before we had even built out Lamp Post downtown, I worked for him for a few months on Russell Boulevard. So remember, I grew up in a family that was primarily architecture and politics and hadn't been exposed to a ton of business. And so my exposure was baptism by fire at 23 years old because I wasn't just exposed to business. I was working day in, day out with these guys who've at the time and certainly over the course of the last decade have proven themselves to be the business leaders of their generation in our community. And we were starting a new company every few weeks, it felt like. And so the kind of confidence that those guys instilled, not just in me, but in Cam Duty and Travis Truett and the other founders of early companies. And everyone they were around. We all, I think probably some people mistook my confidence or cockiness in my 20s as coming from being my dad's son. It actually probably stemmed more from the fact that we were all like little brothers to these hard charging business guys who were telling us every day, look what we've built in our 20s and 30s. You can go do whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. And so I ran and it was a good experience. But when I was 25, I won Hamilton County, you know, running against an incumbent congressman and then turned around after a, you know, we, had, we had lost three-way and ran again. I got married in the meantime, and that was like very narrowly a loss and a real heartbreaker. I, I kind of remember, you know, specific moments about kind of the next morning, you wake up. What you is go, that next oh morning like? Gosh, like what have I, well, particularly when you've kind of doubled down, right? I had lost and then you go back to it and... Um, Incumbent congressmen very rarely lose, but they basically never lose primaries. It's unheard of, you know, like AOC beat an incumbent congressman, but you don't really beat incumbents in primaries. And I had a unique situation. A lot of young business guys had helped me, and we ended up getting 49.2% of the vote and really thought we'd win, which adds another layer of disappointment to it all. Um, 
but the sun rises in the morning, you know, but I remember kind of where Shelby and I were living our, our first house. And I do remember thinking, man, like my life has taken a very different path than it would have if we'd have gotten a few hundred more votes the night before. But we, our first kid was on the way. And the beauty of life, everybody's got stories like this. Where my head was back then, we were actually going to move to Washington. We weren't going to do, you know, we would come back and forth. But I was thinking I didn't want to do the four-day commute. It was hard. It's hard on oh, the family. Yeah. I was a sad little boy on Monday mornings when my dad would leave for Washington. Like that was a really tough part of our childhood. And so I was just going to take, knowing that we were going to start a family. Our main home was going to be in D.C. Yeah. My thought was I'd come back here and connect on the weekends with people. And then to think that I got to kind of go back into business and then not just start a family, but a big family. Yeah. Because there's no way in the world had I gotten elected to Congress as a young guy that I would have been able to have a big family. You've got four kids now? Four, and our fifth is due in four weeks. Congratulations. And that's the end of the road. But it's a huge joy. And so, you know, to kind of see the arc of the last decade of my life. I'm actually one of seven, of so large families are great. You could give me some advice. I grew <laughs> well, up with one sibling. My wife grew up with one sibling. We don't know quite what we've gotten ourselves into. Your kids will love it. I, mean, I know. Growing that's, up in a large family, your kids will love it. That's what we've come to see, you know? There's a, a joyfulness in a big family like that. And when I began to realize, I remember at three kids, I was talking to a great family friend of ours in, in the Washington area, and I told him, I was like, oh, you know, I grew up, I was my dad's only son, so close to him. I just don't want to be spread too thin. I want to know all my kids real well. And he said the thing that everybody who's in a big family understands. But if you didn't grow up in a big family, you don't understand. And that is that every sibling you give your children is this lifelong gift. Yeah. And it's easy to be selfish and say, oh, well, they're going to need me and I'm going to be close to them. But my kids are going to be each other's buddies long after I'm gone. Yeah. My dad used to have to go through all the names before he got to mine. You know, Joe, Greg, Michael, you're Michael. <laughs> but big families are great. And talking about families, how did that change your perspective in terms of what you wanted to do and where you saw your career going in terms of public service and what you wanted to give back to the community? Oh, completely. Fundamentally. And it was all like the first time I held our first kid, you know. Don't you think? Isn't that how it happens? It yeah. doesn't matter how many kids you have. You have one kid uh, and you're a half-decent person. You hold your first kid and you care more about somebody else than you do yourself. And so, it, you know, it absolutely through having a big family, you know, throws cold water on any desire I used to have to serve in Washington for the foreseeable future, just because I, you know, again, like it was actually really tough growing up, huge privilege, but really tough growing up in a congressional family. And that was with two kids. And my mom was a champ. And so the only path for me to serve in elected office for, a, you know, I don't know, 15 years was, you know, just given the dynamics here was probably if Jim Coppinger retired. Right. And, uh, and that I'd run for county mayor and that all played out. And uh, Mayor Coppinger had been really encouraging to me actually for a couple of years leading up to that. But it's in the process of being a dad that I started thinking a ton about public education. And we talk a lot about the things Chattanooga does well. I think a community like ours with obvious strengths should spend just as much time talking about what we're not doing well. And public education's a hodgepodge here. Some parts of the county, it's really strong. Some parts, it's not. Some parts, it's better than people realize, but we don't tell that story well. And a lot of the emphasis on the good stuff going on in public education here, I think, is lost in the hype around 
are notorious private schools. You know, I mean, they are in many ways marketing machines at this point. And so they drown out some of the great stuff that's going on in our, uh, our public schools. Like Brainerd High School's valedictorian went to Stanford University with a million dollars in scholarships, you know. Like everybody in Chattanooga should have known that. Yeah, and that's the stuff we have to champion because they're great private schools and I've taken advantage of them with my kids. But they do skew a lot of things when it comes to public education. Not just the attention, but test scores and that's right, and things like that. So, in terms of you mentioned building the schools, what's the priority at this point? Getting new schools built or getting schools that need to be rehabbed? Rehabbed. I think it's both of those. We've got a complex web of school facilities challenges because you've got a city and county school system that merged twenty five years ago, and then I think it's just about being wise stewards of taxpayer dollars in terms of. Uh, making the decisions around where do you renovate, where do you consolidate, where do you build fresh, knowing that building fresh is more expensive than it's ever been. And all of our conversations about facilities have started with kids and parents, like kids in terms of what are the educational opportunities that we can provide as we modernize facilities. And then parents, because especially in a community where you've got such prevalence in private education, what's the story the public school system is telling parents? And government never does a great job of thinking about the customer the way business does. But to a lot of these conversations, I've tried to remind the school system and others in county government, let's be mindful that, you know, the consumer, the customer is kids and parents and what they're telling us they want, we ought to always be listening to. And so that's the kind of thinking we've tried to bring to it. School facilities are about buildings. I do love buildings. I think what you know, people will see the more we talk about the plans that Dr. Robertson and I've devised, it's, it's buildings that open up really cool opportunities for students. I want to shift gears a second, talk a little bit about public service, not so much running for elected office, but the things you do in the community. And Chattanooga's got a pretty good reputation of being a very involved community. Generational question more than anything else. I had John German last week and we were talking about public service and John was president of Rotary International and gives his time a lot. And I know your family's been involved with YCAP. Do you see your generation, because I'm a good, not quite 30 years older than you, do you see the same dedication to serving the community in terms of ancillary things that you do beyond your profession? in your generation that the older generation seems to think we did a really good job of? I think you see it on the charitable side Mm -hmm. in philanthropy. What has fallen to the wayside in this community, even since I was growing up is civic involvement because civic involvement does sometimes pull business people towards the political arena. Cause there's certain things that can only happen in the political arena, in government. Like there's a lot of things in the American system that can happen fast, swiftly, and efficiently, powerfully through government. And, but I, there's a reticence, I think, in my generation and a cynicism. In this community, it's palpable, a cynicism about politics, politicians. All of my friends, their only political involvement, if I've gotten them to be involved, is in things that I've tried to draw them into. So I'm not worried too much because there's a, I think there's still tremendous commitment. It's a part of the legacy of this community, great philanthropy, but I do worry. Millennials aren't that young anymore. Now, yeah. now you know, <laughs> the Gen Zers are coming up. I'd say, you know, think about when you think about civic 
engagement in this community, you do kind of have a gap from the Corker Womp mm-hmm. era of leadership. Those are boomers like Corker and Womp. They were the probably the most notable boomer politicians around here. Add Bo Watts into that list. So they're all in the same age group. You know, you, you don't have a lot of notable elected officials from, let's say, 62, 60, you know, the kind of mid 60s to your mid 40s. It's true. But you had a little bit of a gap in, and not just political, but even civic leadership. Maybe you're going to see millennials you know, step forward and be willing to, when necessary, jump the fence kind of beyond philanthropy into civic life, which will bring you into political. And, and I describe civic life as, you know, like boards. I'm looking for talented people to serve on, you know, municipal and county boards. And uh, it takes some arm twisting these days. Yeah. How do you bridge that gap? For someone who hasn't been involved, what would you say to someone that you're trying to fill a board seat and you go to someone who's in their, let's say, mid-40s and I just don't have time for it. I'd really like to do it, but I don't have time. Well, I did this. I mean, I'll give you an example. I convinced Barry Large to serve on the Erlanger board. So as Erlanger was transitioning, the county had one final appointment as it you know goes into its new life as a nonprofit. And Barry is probably the most coveted board member in town, but he's, he doesn't do much of it. And I kind of just told him, like, you owe it back to the community. You know, just you've, bluntly. You've, yeah. I'm, so some of my friends, I can just be yeah. blunt and say, you know, I could probably be doing something with the next several years of my life that would be more profitable on an hourly basis to my family. But I think I can make a difference that will affect a lot of people in the same way. You know, some guys like Barry or I asked Craig Fuller to serve on a board, uh, you know, similar kind of situation. Hey, we need really talented people in our community who are willing to step up and serve in these boards. I'm going to make the case, as has kind of been the tradition here going back decades, that we should have really talented people consider running for local government. One thing I reject wholeheartedly, having grown up around Washington politics, is that there are, uh, you know, this kind of notion of climbing the ladder. I always thought that was wrong. The different levels of government in the American system are so completely different, right? So to think of Senator Watson's, Chairman Watson's perch in, in Nashville is somehow underneath what goes on in Washington. Ah, that's ridiculous. There's not many people in the country who in public service uh, or elected office can get more done than Senator Watson. And I'd love, even at a county commission level, and you think about the heyday of the county commission when you got guys like Harold Coker serving, really dignified business leaders in our community. You know, let's draw some of them back in. Why could some of the more successful people in our community not do that? I think Tiffany Robinson is the best example of this right now. You know, the chair of our school board is a very successful developer and businesswoman. That's unusual. You know, find me another mid-sized community in America where the school board chair is also one of the, you know, foremost uh, business leaders right in the peak of her career. So really selling that sense of obligation to your community to give back. And I do want to ask you one final question. Think back to when you were 25 and what would you tell yourself is important for a happy life? I think that can pertain to you, even though that gap is not as wide. What would I have told 25-year-old me? That's important for a happy life. Yeah. Uh, It's to just give your life away. Hold it loosely. Go focus on other people and it comes back to you in spades. Right. I mean, the things that bring me the most joy in my job, even sometimes real small things that we're able to do that help people get where they're trying to go. That's it said another way. If you'll help people get where they're trying to go, you will go wherever you want to go. Kind of a karma thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, If you'll help people get what they want, you'll get what you want almost every time. And it's kind of how we're deeply wired as people, you know? Well, and that feeds into your argument about board seats. 
it may not be profitable for you over the next year to do this, but you're going to get so much more out of it that's going to come back to you in spades. Well, I appreciate you coming in, Wes, and it's good to catch up with you and uh, look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.